Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby. Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa. Take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hey, guys. It is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun, too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere, and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Gavin Hamilton's Euro Road Trip. This episode. Group D. Scotland. On this podcast, we're in Group D. The spotlight is now on Scotland. And for that, I'm speaking to Alan Patillo. Alan is one of Scotland's best-known sports writers. He's covered the Scotland national team for the Scotsman newspaper for many years. In the last qualifying campaign, he travelled all over Europe with the team to Moscow, Kazakhstan, San Marino and Belgium. And after that famous night against Serbia in Belgrade in the playoff final, Alan was finally able to file a report about Scotland taking part in a major tournament again. Alan's been with the Scotsman for many years, since 1998 in fact, and that was the last year, coincidentally, that Scotland took part in a major tournament, the uh, the World Cup in France in '98. So he's in a, a special position, I think, to talk about Scotland's long wait to qualify for another finals. Also, and for me this is important, Alan is from Dundee. Uh, he's based now in Edinburgh, but he's outside of the old firm bubble. And I think that's important with, with Scottish football because so much of football in Scotland is, is dominated by the old firm. And, and you can't write about... Scottish football and the old firm without being accused of being biased against one or the other. Alan can't be accused of favouring either Rangers or Celtic. And he's got a lot of interesting things to say about the Tartan army, particularly as a lot of their support comes from, from outside of Glasgow. So grab a can of Iron Brew, stick in your headphones as we find out all about Scotland with Alan Patillo. Alan, great to talk to you. We're talking about Scotland qualifying for the first tournament in 22 years. It wasn't an easy qualifying campaign. The nerves must have been in shreds after those playoffs and the penalty shootouts. Ultimately, did the nature of how a qualification was achieved make it more enjoyable? Definitely, I think, definitely. I've said that a few times. Yeah, that game against Serbia, which Scotland, surprisingly, were, 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 were pretty much in control of for, for the majority of it. It was, it was quite kind of... Um, Uneasy, uneasy. How, 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 if it made you feel uneasy, how, how straightforward it seemed to be going. And then, of course, Scotland lost the the last minute equaliser, and that kind of almost made you think, oh yeah, no, no, this is this is Scotland. This is typical Scotland. We're back. 
this feels more comfortable. And of course, they went through the half. And I, I think the, the way Scotland managed to negotiate that further half an hour of extra time in Belgrade was, was almost heroic because uh, you would have thought they'd be out on their feet by, by that stage, having, having been so close to qualifying, literally seconds away from qualifying and to seeing it taken from their grasp in the way, in the manner that it was, to get through that next half an hour without conceding a goal, I thought was one of Steve Clark's finest achievements. And then, of course, the penalties, this newfound, um, um, this newfound ability to score penalties Scotland have acquired. I think that's 12 this year. They've had 12 and scored 12 uh, last year. So, yeah, that, that, that was a particularly uh, nerve-wracking experience. And then David Marshall's save at the end and the, the slight delay as he waited for the referee to give him the okay that, that, that he hadn't been perceived to have come off his line. The, the celebrations that followed after that were, were, were pretty, pretty incredible. It lasted all into the night, certainly in the hotel in Belgrade, as we, we've seen many videos of uh, since. Yeah. It, it wasn't an easy qualifying campaign, was it, by any stretch of imagination? There were heavy defeats to Belgium and Russia. What, what, yeah, can, can, can we go back and just talk about the um, Clark, Steve Clark's appointment? Because he... He replaced Alex McLeish in the, after the poor starts of the campaign. But I was looking back at some of the squad lists from the autumn of 2018, when there seemed to be a lot of players withdrawing sort of fairly dubious sort of excuses, it seemed, for, for injuries and stuff at one point. Did, did just sort of patients run out with McLeish, with the players and, and everyone else? Did it just sort of peter out? And why was, why was Clark brought in? Yeah, <laughs> you see a difficult, yeah, absolutely right, a difficult qualifying campaign. I mean, we really had no right to be involved in, in Euro 2020 if it wasn't for this, this new great Michel Platini invention called the Nations League, which obviously gave us an opportunity to come in through the back door after one of the more dismaying qualifying campaigns in terms of the actual official Euro 2020 qualifying campaign from Scotland, which basically lasted, I would suggest, a good 12 minutes before we were basically saying we're out because that was how long it took Scotland to be two goals down against Kazakhstan in the opening game. That was obviously McLeish. And McLeish really had no, nowhere to go after that result. I mean, I, I was there, I, you know, a five-hour a five flight to get to um, Kazakhstan and they tried to prepare meticulously for it. They went five days prior to the game in order to get accustomed to the time difference, etc. So, you know, McLeish couldn't be blamed for that. They really did put the work in and, and then just to see their hopes seemingly go up in smoke after 12 minutes when they lost two quick goals against Kazakhstan was, uh, was very dismaying. I mean, even after that first game, Alex McLeish was facing questions, I remember, in the press conference afterwards about his future. Uh, he was asked whether he would look at his future and whether he would... The reaction was so, so severe from Scotland fans mm. back home after that defeat, which, which I think I'm right in saying it, it was his worst ever defeat in terms of FIFA rankings. Scotland never, had never lost to a, a team as lowly as Kazakhstan since the FIFA ranking system has come into operation. So it was a pretty, a pretty bleak beginning. And so even after that first game, I think McLeish was a, was a dead man walking. He had one more game against San Marino, which Scotland managed to um, negotiate 2-0, I think, over there. Even after that, he came back home and, and uh, it was almost seemed like a matter of time before he was uh, relieved of the position of, of Scotland manager. And, and he, he duly was. Steve Clark came in and there wasn't any... It wasn't a sudden shift to great results or anything. Clark said himself that that, that couldn't happen. It would, take, it would take a while, it would take a few months, a few games before you could see evidence of what he could bring to the side. And it did. As you, as you said, there were heavy defeats against Belgium, 4-0 uh, against Russia, 4-0 in Moscow. 
I think Steve Clark has called that defeat the nadir of his um, reign to date. I was there again in Moscow and it was, a, it was a pretty, another bleak night on the road to Scotland. It was kind of 4-0 going on, possibly 8-0. Russia, Russia have been having have been having a hard hard time themselves uh, since the World Cup in Russia. I think that was their first first win in Russia since since the World Cup. So um, things weren't looking great. Things were not looking great. I remember the the, the platoon of journalists. We we made a weary way back from from Moscow that trip. And if someone said to us that Scotland would be still be going to Euro twenty twenty come you know a year later, then we'd be absolutely just you know you would not believe it. You know, I've followed Scotland now for, well, in terms of reporting for 10, 11 years now, most games and, and things seemed as bleak as they ever had done on, on that occasion. So Clark, you know, kudos to Clark for the way he has turned things around since then. And I'm, you know, I'm sure we'll go into how he's done it, but he, he's changed the system slightly. He's brought in a couple of, um, of, of, of different players. And, uh, you know, I'm not saying it's been an absolute wholesale. He's not changed things hugely, but he's just tweaked things enough. And, uh, and here Scotland are, you know, a year on, a year and a half on, things look very much brighter and we can look forward to the Euro 2020 tournament with a degree of optimism, I think. I mean, it's interesting you, you talk about it in, in such a negative way at that point, because looking at the players that Clark's now got, I mean, he's got a, he's benefited from a core of, of English-based players. I mean, I was looking back at the, the squad from the 98 World Cup, the last tournament Scotland mm. were taking part in. You had John Collins, Monaco, and there were there was Kevin Gallagher and Colin Hendry at Blackburn. Yeah, and they you know title winners with Blackburn and everything. But the bulk of the team was playing in the Scottish League. Clark now has got the likes of Andy Robertson. You know, arguably one of the best left backs in the world now. Kieran Tierney at Arsenal. Stuart Armstrong at Southampton, who's had a difficult start, but is settling in pretty well this season. John McGinn at, at Villa, Scott McTominay at, at Man United. I mean, that's a pretty good group of players. Is there talk of a, a new generation of, of, of talented players? Because there's, you know, in the past, there's been a lot of discussion about the, the, you know, that sort of talent line drying up. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah. Looking, just looking at that list, they're all got their own individual stories, of course. The, the Robertson, Andy Robertson Taylor is, is, is a wonderful one, isn't it, of uh, coming up through the ranks at, at Queen's Park and going from there to Dundee United and obviously Hull City. But, um, you know, I mean, even his, his sort of um, rise to prominence has perhaps taken even, even Scots by surprise because um, although he was, a, he was a very much an admired player at Dundee United and, and obviously we could see his talent at Hull City, you know, you would, again, you'd, you'd be hard-pressed to imagine he would become, the, as you say, the, possibly the best left-back in, in the world. I don't know, I just think, you might disagree, but I just think there seems to be a bit more of a, a respect towards Scottish football in the last few years. I'm not. I'm just wondering why that's happened. Perhaps Brendan Rodgers coming coming up here with Celtic um, just seems a bit more profile in Scottish football. Obviously, Stephen Gerrard's there now. I think players, English clubs, have been more minded or top flight English clubs, been more minded to give you know players a chance. And someone like Kieran Tierney, who um, uh, has been um, impressing at Celtic for for, for several years. He's settled in at Arsenal very, very well as well. And examples of these players showing they, they, can, they, they, they can excel in, in English top-flight football has perhaps um, changed the perception of Scottish football from certainly south of the border. You know, I don't see a huge improvement in play in top flight. It's just, I think, a change in perception from English clubs towards Scottish players that perhaps once they were a bit, I don't know, um, suspicious almost of the you know, can, can these players excel down here when now they, they, they've seen the proof that, that they can and someone like Stuart Armstrong for example has, has gone down to as you say Southampton and uh, whenever I see Southampton play now he, he seems to be one of their, their, their best players and it's uh, yeah it is um, 
it's very satisfying as a Scottish fan to, to see this because uh, I'm old enough to remember the days in the 80s when you'd watch an English league game and as you say there was three, four or five Scottish players excelling in, in that game. He's also got a lot of players playing regularly for you know, in Europe for Celtic and Rangers but he's also picked players from other clubs in Scotland as well. He's not been afraid to go yeah. outside of that and he, he seems to enjoy working on the training pitch with players and guiding players through and bringing players through. And he does seem to be happiest in a tracksuit working with yeah. players on the training pitch. How's he coping with the sort of other, you know, the blaze when he has to take the tracksuit off and put the blazer on and, and make the squad announcements and deal with the media? Is he comfortable in the, in the spotlight? Yeah, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. You know, he says it as it is. He says it as it is. He's a very straightforward with the press and he's, um, you know, I've got no complaints about him whatsoever. Yeah, you know, you wouldn't mess with him. <laughs> There's been a succession of, of Scotland managers who've got the respect, like um, Gordon Strachan and Alex McLeish, who've, who've done it as a player, and Steve Clark's just the latest. And he, he was, uh, although didn't have quite a stellar international career as McLeish and, and Strachan, he did, he did play seven, I think, seven times for Scotland in that mid 80s period when Scotland had a pretty good team. Obviously, he spent the bulk of his career in, in English first division, and he, he has that respect. His coaching career has been very much at the top end, uh, working with Mourinho, Doug Leash. I mean, he, he commands respect and he, he, he gives journalists the respect I think you know, they deserve as well in, in press conference situations. And, you know, he's, he's, got, he's got a bite to him, though. You know, we'd never, I wouldn't cross him, that's for sure. He's, he's his own man, very much his own man. And um, I think that he's demonstrated that in, in his selection. I mean, you know, a, lot, <laughs> a couple of players... Stephen O'Donnell just brings things to mind, for example, who was um, a Kamarnik fullback, wingback under Clark. He's now at Motherwell. He's a first teamer in for Scotland. I mean, Clark's been a lot of eyebrows were raised at that as Clark sort of um, kept playing him each game, and people were wondering, he's just not, he's not international class. People were, people were thinking, but he's played his part very much played his part that night in Belgrade, for example. I think that's an example of Clark's stubbornness in terms of playing somebody who, you know, is very much not as uh, widely acclaimed as the likes of Robertson and Tierney, but so far has proved worth his place. And, uh, and, and Lyndon Dykes as well is another example, a striker who um, Clark really went through hoops to, to try and uh, convince to change his um, international status from Australia to Scotland. And has very much been, been proved correct in, in doing that because Dykes has been one of the, the stars of this of this latest qualifying campaign in the Nations League. Scored a couple of goals and has led the line superbly. This time last year, well, he was a striker for Livingston. Again, no one would have expected him to play the part he has. So yeah, Clark, he definitely has that, that stubborn streak and you know, I think Scotland are benefiting from it. I want to take a look at the, the tactical options open to Clark in a moment. I just want to take a quick break. In the qualifiers, Scotland's played 4-2-3-1, the formation favoured by Clark at Kilmarnock. But in the recent playoff games and, and the Nation League games in the autumn, he switched to back three, and that's in quite a radical move. Was that really just a way of shoehorning his two best players, Tierney and, and Robertson, into the, into the formation? Tierney at left side of centre-back and, and Robertson at left wing-back? I think it was initially. I, mean, you know, I don't think you would necessarily go from what you've as you say, what's been tried and tested for, for, for Clark at, at Kilmarnock, unless there was a real good reason to do so. And I think having two, possibly of the two best left-backs in, in European football, perhaps, you know, that, that's a good enough reason to do that, I think, to, to, to change your, your beliefs, your, your system, to try and accommodate them. 
And he, he always seemed pretty confident. I mean, that, that was the question that was always asked. Poor, poor Steve Clark. I mean, he, he didn't have to. I mean, Tierney, Tierney was out injured for a long, long spell at the start. Soon after, Clark took the job. So he didn't, he didn't have to deal with this sort of conundrum, if you can call it a conundrum, and, and saying how, how do you fit in two of your best players into the team? But uh, if you can call it a headache. So he didn't have to really deal with it until, until the start of 2020 when we, we, we returned to football after lockdown. And he um, played Tierney left centre-half and put Robertson left, left wing back. And I wouldn't say it was an immediate success. Uh, 1-1 against uh, Israel in the first game of the Nations League. It was a pretty, pretty poor game. There was a, quite a bit of criticism afterwards directed at Clark for this, this new system, this new three-at-the-back system. Uh, not so much the Tierney-Robertson angle. It was more, I think, um, playing Scott McTominay at right centre-half, which uh, was uh, deemed not to have been a success, I think, against Israel. But Clark, again, credit to him, persisted. And I think if I'd been asked after that Israel game if Clark would play McTominay again at right centre-half against Czech Republic a few days later, I would have said, no no way. But he did, he did. And uh, McTominay definitely grown into the, the role. Certainly did that night against Czech Republic, played a lot better. Yeah, and, and I can't see, you know, I can't see Clark deviating from it now. And, and McTominay himself, I think, if you asked him, has seemed to have a, a new lease of life as a Scotland player at right centre-half. He struck on something there. He struck on something there. And obviously the reason for it was this, this whole Tierney-Robertson conundrum. But, um, but I think Clark just found a, a system that favours the Scotland team as a whole. Yeah. He's playing Gallagher in, in centre-half and Motherwell centre-half. Again, like O'Donnell, like Dykes, not somebody you might have expected to be a Scotland international. But he's absolutely excelled in that position. Came in as cover for Scott McKenna. And um, again, I would su- suggest he is in the box seat for that to play that role at the Euro finals next summer. And in terms of other individual positions, I'm assuming David Marshall, after the, the penalty heroics, will be the first choice keeper. Absolutely. I, I'd, I'd see no reason why to deviate from that. He's slightly helped by the fact that Alan McGregor has retired and Craig Gordon's had a, had a difficult spell at, at Celtic towards the end of his career there and is now playing the championship level with, with Hearts. Still playing very well, but, but Marshall really has you know, taken this latest opportunity with both hands. Again, credit to Clark. Clark said himself that one of the first calls he made once he got the job was to David Marshall, who had been you know, very much sort of a forgotten, a forgotten man for Scotland in, in, in recent times. But he put a call in saying, look, I want you back in the Scotland setup. You know, pretty much um, said he would be his number one, and brought Marshall in, and he's been he's been pretty much faultless, I think. And it's a good story that the David Marshall, you know, he, he's just stuck around, stuck around over a succession of managers, never really let anybody down. And uh, I think it would be a real, really something to celebrate if he if he does retain the number one spot in in the finals. And I'm, I see no reason why why not. And what what about in midfield? Because one of the problems with playing wing backs is that there's fewer options in fewer places in midfield. But presumably, moving McTominay back to the defence opens opportunities up for other people. So, who would be the the first choice midfielders? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, um, if he plays the you know the, the the two sitting midfielders in front of the back three, I think the 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 best combination of the one he seems to be he seems to have settled on is, is Ryan Jack and Callum McGregor. Ryan Jack being, of course, the Rangers midfielder and, and Callum McGregor being the Celtic midfielder. They seem to really dovetail well together. There's been a lot of, obviously, people have remarked on this, uh, this, this sort of Rangers-Celtic angle anchoring the Scotland team, and, and it does seem to work. It does seem to work. Very much rivals in their club career, but, but very much a good combination in, in, in midfield. Yeah, Jack's been a real, I think, a real underappreciated 
element of the Scotland team. He's a, he's a wonderful player, good at keeping possession and breaking down moves from the opposition. And uh, yeah, it's, it's been worth his place. And again, one of these players that didn't gain his first cap until quite late in his career, but he's gonna, I think he'll prove a very um, important part of the team in, in come the Euros. And uh, then in front of them, of course, you have, you, know, you have your Ryan Christie's who has come into the team and been a pretty much become a mainstay of the Scotland team now and is, is providing a, a goal threat as well, just behind Dykes up front. So, and, and Stuart Armstrong too. I mean, I think Stuart Armstrong has been very unlucky not to be a starter in the Scotland team because of, of, of Christie's form. But I think if Armstrong continues the way he's going at Southampton, he will push himself into contention come the summer. You've got James Forrest as a winger who can also play inside. He's been injured. He's another option behind um, Dykes, is that yeah. right? Well, Dykes, yeah. Dykes is an incredible story as well because he's he's had a rapid rise, hasn't he, from um, almost nowhere. I mean, you mentioned that earlier, but he's... Um, yeah, Queen of the, Queen of the South. Yeah, he he's, uh, grew up on the Gold Coast in Australia and uh, mother and father are from Dumfries and Galloway. They, I think they moved across to Australia and, and so Lyndon Dykes was, uh, was brought up very much in Australia and I think didn't really play football seriously until his, I think I might say, 14, 15 he played more um, Aussie rules, I think, but then turned his hand to football and came back to Scotland, got, I think, a, a, a trial at, at Queen of the South and proved himself there as foil to Stephen Dobby. I don't know if you remember Stephen Dobby, yeah. the sort of veteran Scottish striker who um, sort of took him under his wing and uh, Dykes certainly learned, learned how to play up front from him, I think, helped, certainly helped him and uh, then got a move to Livingston and proved himself in, in a Scottish top flight had a couple of really high profile performances against uh, Celtic and Rangers I remember and yeah has managed to get a, a big money move to QPR so it is a, a great story and, uh, and that's the trouble with Scotland really you know however well Scotland seemed to be doing they just never they were never able to to find the you know the x factor up front the striker the, the one to hold the ball up and and perhaps you know, weigh in with obviously a few goals, which is you want your number nine to be doing. But Dyke seems to be that player yeah. finally. And obviously, there's there's Ollie McBurney who yeah. hasn't, hasn't hasn't never won over the Tartan Army and hasn't. Will, will he will he will he ever score for Scotland? Will he ever will he get no, that chance? Yeah, I, I feel sorry for him. He's been very unlucky. I'm fortunate to go to in the South America tour with Scotland a couple of summers ago, and he was playing in that, and he had a great header in the Azteca Stadium against Mexico. I remember, which just was cannoned off the upright and he hit the bar recently I think against Israel just last end of last year a great effort from a distance hit the bar you just think will he will he ever score will he ever score so he's been very unlucky in that respect and I do like him I wouldn't I wouldn't write him off yet although I know, I know a lot of the Tartan army are I do think he, he's got something to offer and is a you know a more than acceptable substitute for for Lyndon Dykes but I think Dykes certainly has got the jersey has got the number nine jersey as it stands is lee griffiths coming back from sort of layoffs is is he an option a different type of option in attack another tale about which you could you could uh, devote a whole podcast to i think the story of lee lee griffiths just a fascinating character fascinating footballer probably the best striker of a ball in scottish football wonderful left foot as we saw against england those two free kicks just you know you somebody you would you would always want in and around your team I think for sure he'll be in the squad for the Euros and an absolute great option to have off the bench, I think. The, the big problem with Lee Griffiths now, and, and he's 30 now, you can't believe he's 30, but um, it's just his fitness. He came back from lockdown really struggling for fitness, got a, a dressing down from his man, club manager, Neil Lennon. Didn't play much in the first few months of this season. It's just managed to reclaim his, his starting place at Celtic now and is looking pretty good, looking pretty good. So 
I think Clark will definitely have him as an option off, off the bench and what, what, what wonderful option to have and just see it against England in the last few minutes. <laughs> the, the game delicately poised and he comes on <laughs> off the bench and perhaps Scotland are awarded a free kick and you know, who knows what might happen again. But you know, for, for once, for the first time in a long time, Scotland do have options up front. Yeah. Are there any other players that, that could be called up? between now and June I mean there aren't that many opportunities but uh, yeah, we haven't no. talked about the under 21s Scott Gemmell's doing a pretty good job it seems at that yeah. Them. yeah he is he is, he is. and, and um, well you ask about other players and just, just a couple of players that spring to mind immediately there I mean Billy Gilmore who's, who's such great things are always are expected of I wonder if he'll he'll get enough games between now and the end of the season to you know perhaps justify his inclusion in, in, in the squad but he's somebody I think who Scotland fans would love to see, would love to see in the squad, and I think would be good enough to come in. But but midfield is a pretty competitive area for Scotland right now, so I, I, I do wonder about that. But he's certainly an option, as as is David Turnbull. I don't know if you know too much about David Turnbull. He's um ex Motherwell player who signed for Celtic in the summer, having signed for Celtic a, a year previously, but then he failed a medical very sadly, and and, and went back to Motherwell and, and built himself up again and earned his move back to Celtic last uh, just in the in the summer just gone and has, has just broken into the Celtic team recently and I think he could be somebody that that might make a late claim for a place as well he's been very impressive you know very good you know, dead ball delivery and somebody I, I think Clark will be looking at. I want to talk a little bit about the Tartan army and, and Scotland support but we'll, we'll take a short break. Alan I, I was when I was growing up Scotland were the, were the country that qualified for tournaments and it was England who who failed to reach the World Cup in, in the 74, 78. There's now a whole generation of Scottish fans who've, who've never seen their country qualify or you know, compete at a major tournament. Is that sense of failure or acceptance of failure ingrained in the, the DNA of the younger generation? Are the older generation still getting frustrated at, at Scotland's failure to qualify? Yeah, it's a difficult one to answer. You're right, I'm the same growing up. I grew up more memories of the 80s and very much Scotland were just, you just expected them to be at certainly the World Cup, not, not so much the European Championships, but the World Cup. I remember the World Cup in 94 when Scotland weren't there. It just seemed like a, a breach in nature almost. And, well, what's happening? <laughs> Why are we not there? This, this, this shouldn't be happening. But of course, we, we became very much used to it in, in the, since the new millennium, certainly. Failure ingrained in Scotland, it does seem perhaps so. As we discussed earlier against Serbia, you thought, here we go again, losing a last-minute equaliser, and we're destined never to qualify again, never. So it does seem as if that success has perhaps broken this chain of failure, and perhaps we can, there is more to look forward to in the future. Uh, I started working for Scotsman in, in 1998, and I uh, went to the World Cup, fortunately, the last two weeks of the World Cup in 98. To report it was after Scotland had got knocked out funnily enough so I, I was I was asked to go over and, and just do the last couple of weeks of the tournament and I thought well, I thought what, 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 what great fun this is I was in my mid-20s and uh, what, what great job this is Scotland will always be qualifying for tournaments I'll always have the you know, opportunity to go and watch them at major finals and of course you know Scotland hadn't qualified for one since until until against Serbia so that's yeah. 20 22 years of my sports writing career have been <laughs> frustrated very frustrated sports writer uh so you know from a personal point of view this, this is fantastic and, I'm, and I'm, I'm i'm loving it and i particularly appreciated that night in serbia um and i'm sure as did the, the tartan army the tartan army is a, it's a funny funny group of if you saw if you see them they're very much the older generation i guess maybe that's the same with all international 
supports. It's obviously a costly business traveling around the world and around Europe to follow the team. So it tends to be a bit of an older generation. So these guys and girls, these are, they, they, you know, they possibly, they obviously do remember the 80s as well. I think this, this track record of Scotland not qualifying has been particularly hard on them because they obviously they knew what it used to be like. But they still end up, you know, you still go to these uh, outposts of Europe and there'll still be that, that loyal band of Tartan Army there supporting the, the, the country. So I don't think it necessarily led to a, a dropping off of support for the national team. But yeah, you could tell it was becoming a harder, a harder job to watch Scotland getting thumped at places like Kazakhstan, etc. I think, you know, qualifying now was very timely because uh, it was getting, you know, it was getting to almost a quarter of a century. I think after that, you think, you know, yeah. will it ever happen again? So I think this was this was a very very timely qualification. I think yeah. you know, a lot of credit yeah. is due to Steve Clark for that. You, you mentioned the '98 World Cup because I, I remember going to watch England England's first game in Marseille, and the night before the game, a group of England fans, not very many, it never is, but they they smashed up the the sort of the dockside in in Marseille, and then all the the photos of tables and chairs flying in the air and everything and it was a really nasty atmosphere the next day you know we drove to the stadium and got stopped at a checkpoint and the, you know the shutters were down everywhere and we pretended to be german I think, to get through the the checkout um because it was it was such a nasty atmosphere the next day i, could, I remember getting a train from marseille to bordeaux where scotland were playing norway i think it was the train there was quite it's a long way to Bordeaux from Marseille, but every there was quite a few stops along the way, and every stop a few more Scottish fans got on the train. And by the time we got to Bordeaux, it was it was a, a terrific atmosphere and a much much more, much pleasanter atmosphere than with England. Why why is it that that Scottish fans are happy when they? I mean, they're, yeah, they all they're all consuming a lot of alcohol. The alcohol helps, of course, but with England, it seems to make people angry. Whereas with Scotland, um, always seem to enjoy themselves. Yeah, I mean, I just wonder about that. I mean, I, I guess that the makeup of the of a Scotland support tends to be perhaps supporters from smaller clubs in Scotland or perhaps clubs that don't necessarily enjoy these um, you know, European trips or uh, have not got much experience of playing abroad in Europe. And so it really is very much an experience that I think Scotland fans want to enjoy, want to go there and just enjoy it, have a few drinks, and perhaps don't have the expectations that perhaps England do. England you know, expect to be involved at the, the business end of tournaments and um and scotland perhaps i, I would i mean they've yet to qualify past the, the, the opening stage of a major finals so perhaps there isn't the same expectation so it really is a case of going to these events and just thinking well we're here let's just enjoy it let's enjoy it and i think that was certainly the case of france france 98 where, where scotland obviously kicked off the entire tournament against brazil and there was just that party atmosphere wasn't there in paris of you, you know you can still you can still see the images of the scotland fans dancing and around the Eiffel Tower and playing games of football at the Eiffel Tower and it was it was particularly special major finals that, that one I remember yeah. so yeah and also I guess and also people you know there'd be, there'd be many kind of theories expounded about this uh, one of them being in the, the Scotland fans of, saw the England fans as this reputation England fans garnered for being uh, obviously violent and going abroad and, and causing havoc wherever they went. Scotland fans saw this. And of course, the last thing they want to do is be, is be lumped in with England. So they, they almost took the opposite routes in terms of their behaviour and, uh, you know, made sure they were absolutely just there for, for a good time. 
time and, and were very respectful to the locals of the places they went to. And I think that, that certainly is a factor that, the, you know, these Scotland fans saw England, you know, create such such havoc abroad and thought, no, 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 we, we want to be different to that. And, and the Tartan Army do do a lot of good, you know. I, they, they get some criticism from here in Scotland for being kind of uh, happy clappers and just going along and supporting Scotland, whatever the, whatever the result, and cheering them off the pitch, whether they get beaten or whether they win. But they are a force for good. I don't think anybody can deny that. There's a charity arm of the Tartan Army as well. Wherever they go, they end up, I think, giving donations to the locals, etc. So they've been, you know, they've been a, they've been a, as I say, a force for good. And I'm really glad, I'm really glad that they've got the, the chance. Well, well, fingers crossed, they have the chance to go to games this summer, pandemic permitting. I would imagine Steve Clark is pretty happy with the draw, with with two games at Hamden, Czech Republic and Croatia, either side of a game at Wembley. But it's not only unfortunate, with, you know, if, if that all does go to plan, then, and we'll be welcoming the Tartan Army to London, but it does seem a shame there won't be, there won't be that takeover of a foreign city, at least yeah. in the group stages. Yeah, um, no, exactly, exactly, exactly. But I suppose just small steps while we can, you know, I mean, just getting, getting a crowd inside Hamden, for example, would, would feel like a, a major step forward and a major, a major event. And I think Scotland fans wouldn't complain about that at all, just providing they can get at least some fans in, into Hamden for these two games. And then obviously Wembley's another matter entirely, but, uh, you know, you know the, 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 I still have such fond memories of that European Championships in June 96. You just think, oh, that'd be amazing to have that recreated a summer's evening in, in, at Wembley and the two teams, two old rivals going at it like that. It just seems a, a wonderful way to kick off that, you know, a new era possibly of, of sport, of football with, with fans back in the stadiums. But yeah, fingers crossed. Yeah. Uh, and what are the, the realistic expectations then for Scotland? Because there's those three games. The England game is, is obviously going to get a lot of attention. But is, is Clark looking at the opening game against the Czechs as the, you know, the obvious opportunity to get points on the board and then try and get draws against England and Croatia? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't see why not. I mean, obviously, the, the Scotland have beaten Czech Republic recently, twice recently, and uh, first of those occasions was obviously slightly, slightly skewed because of uh, Czech Republic ended up playing the third eleven, I think it was, having had a COVID outbreak, which was uh, Scotland managed to managed to win almost despite themselves in a very scrappy game, two one, but they did win at Hamden as well, one nil, and, and yeah, absolutely no reason why Scotland cannot beat Czech Republic at home. And uh, I think Clark will be looking for three points from that. Croatia again, you know, obviously a very good, type, very good team, World Cup finalists. But um, Scotland have have experience of beating Croatia as well. Beat them away in Zagreb under Gordon Strachan, I recall one of the one of the recent really really good away performances. Yeah, I, I think Clark would will have to identify those two games as chance to get two wins and then whatever comes from England would, would be a bonus. But uh, you, you'd think, yeah, I think it does present Scotland with a. We've said this at looking at uh, World Cup in 1990, Costa Rica, for example, we thought, oh, this is it, this is our time to get to the second stage. And of course, it didn't happen. But uh, you do look at the games in the summer and you think, why not? Why can't Scotland make it to the second, the, the knockout phase? Yeah. Well, hopefully, um, we'll be able to meet up in person at Wembley for that game. Hopefully, a Wembley packed to the rafters with fans. Yeah, I love that. Thanks so much for, for giving us your time today and talking about Scotland and all the best for the summer and the tournament. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks for listening to this podcast. If you liked it and you want to find out more, there's a new podcast with a different journalist from every single country competing in this summer's European Championship. You can find them all wherever you listen to your podcasts. Don't forget to subscribe and follow this show so you know whenever I release a new episode. And you can find out more great sports podcasts on the Sports Social Podcast Network 
Just head to sport-social.co.uk. Gavin Hamilton's Euro Road Trip. Follow and subscribe now so you never miss an episode. This podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Sports Social Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.